Well, welcome back. It is good to be with you all this morning. It is good to open up the Word of the Lord together and to see what we can learn from the life of Joshua. We've been in this series for, this is week five now, looking at this idea of strong, having courage over fear. And so we're going to keep talking about that this week and keep examining what it looks like for us to try to embody courage in our lives. But first, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to slow our lives down, to open up your word, to learn from you, Lord. So may you speak to us today. Wherever each one of us are at, whatever we're dealing with or wrestling with, Lord, you alone know. So speak to our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be attentive to hear you as you guide and lead us, as you give us those soft nudges in your direction. Lord, may we know your will and may we walk in it. Lord, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, today is a beautiful day. The sun is out. It's shining. It doesn't look like October. I'm still wearing a short sleeve shirt. It certainly doesn't feel like fall. But I'll tell you, earlier this week, it definitely felt like fall on Wednesday when it was pouring down rain. And I don't know what you were all doing, but I thought it would be a good idea in the pouring down rain to go play golf. So, Golf is hard enough already. You're trying to take these clubs and hit a tiny little ball into a small hole that's hundreds of yards down a field. Yet add in the rain and rain falling over your glasses and slippery clubs, and it makes it just more fun, right? So I was golfing with some pastor friends this week, and uh, mostly for me, golf has been a time of fellowship because I'm not good at it. I'm, in fact, really bad at golf and trying to get better, but I don't go enough to really gain much momentum. So we were teeing up on one of the holes, and if you don't know much about golf, the holes are like long green fields with a hole at the end on the green. And so you tee off at the tee box where you use a driver and you hit the golf ball, and you're supposed to hit it that direction as far as you can. And on the other side of each of your holes are usually other holes, so it kind of goes back and forth. So I get up and I go to tee off, and as I swing down, I pull my head away, And I hit the ball, and the ball shoots off into the field next to me where other people are playing golf going that way. Totally not the right fairway. Rather than my ball going straight, it shot off to the right. And you see, what happened was, as I came down from my swing, I pulled my head. And whether it's baseball or golf, there's an aspect of needing to keep your eyes fixed on the ball. And whenever you pull your head and take your eyes off the ball, it impacts the trajectory of your golf club. So mine came down and went, and my ball followed the direction of my club. And it was a horrible shot. In fact, I lost that golf ball, and I really liked that golf ball. But I looked around, and I looked around, and I couldn't find it, so I had to pick another golf ball and keep going. And you may be wondering, why am I telling you about what a bad golfer I am and about golfing in the rain? But you see, the aspect of keeping your eye on the ball is true as well in our life. And it relates to this idea of Joshua and courage over fear because Joshua knows the importance of keeping our eyes fixed on God. Because a similar thing happens in your life and in mine. When we pull our eyes off of God, like me pulling my eyes off of the ball, we veer off course. We don't stay in the direction that we're supposed to be in And we end up going in the wrong direction. So today we're going to look at a text, at a significant chunk of text that will help us remember to focus upon the Lord, to keep our eyes 
on God and to trust his goodness for our lives, to find our strength in him rather than our own strength and ability. So if you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 23, we're jumping quite a bit ahead in the book of Joshua because last week we were a lot further in front of this and we were looking at how Joshua was leading the Israelites in a battle, how they conquered Jericho. And so now we have this huge gap of text before chapter 23, but that's where we're going to be today. And what's happened in these handful of chapters is that Joshua and Israel, has con- they've continued to move forward, conquering enemy after enemy after enemy, watching the Lord move and work in their midst, watching God fight for them and prevail in battle for them. And that brings us to kind of the end of the book of Joshua because most of those chapters in between are just Israel going and fighting different battles. And there's some great stuff in there. But for the sake of this series, we're going to jump ahead and spend this week in chapter 23 and then next week in chapter 24 as we wrap up our series. And that's the last chapter in Joshua. But I would encourage you, if you have some time this week, go back, read those chapters, watch how God moves, how God leads Israel, and how God fights for them because it's pretty amazing. We're in Joshua chapter 23, starting in verse 1. This is what the text says. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. So it's setting the scene for where we're at. So Joshua is no longer a young man. He's no longer in his prime. He is old and well advanced in years. And for many years, the Lord has worked with Israel to drive out the Canaanites to push them out of the area and to help Israel conquer them. But now God is giving rest. God is giving Israel the chance to breathe. And it doesn't mean that all their enemies are conquered. It doesn't mean that the task is finished. In fact, there are still lands to be conquered, enemies to push out. But God is giving rest right now. There's an importance in rest. There's importance in each one of our lives that we have times and moments to rest, that we don't drive ourselves so hard that we never take time to rest. And we'll talk more about that next year in some of our sermon series of what it looks like to rest and why it's so important that we practice rest. But here we know that Joshua is old. In fact, most likely Joshua is probably about 110 years old here. Because as we'll see in the next chapter, that's how old he is when he dies. And it's believed that this address was given shortly before his death. So Joshua, at 110 years old, is about to give these words to Israel. Picking up in verse 2, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance For your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. So Joshua recognizes where he's at in life, and he's gathering his leaders in Israel. This week is when he's addressing the leaders. Next week we'll see he addresses the entire nation of Israel. So even though it said he summoned all of Israel, then it gives the descriptions of who it is he really summoned. It's his elders, it's the heads, it's the judges, and it's the officers. 
It's those who are leaders within Israel who he's addressing in this chapter, who he's seeking to exhort before the end of his life comes. And next week, we'll look at what he says to the entire nation of Israel as they all gather together. But Joshua recognizes that he is old and well advanced in years. This is the end of his life, and so he's wrapping things up, and he wants to give his final concluding address. And we see this happen elsewhere in Scripture. Moses does a similar thing as well. They gather people together. They give kind of their farewell address, encouraging, exhorting people to the Lord. And that's what Joshua is doing here. And there's three things that really he calls his leaders to here in the text that we're going to look at today. The first is to reflect upon God's faithfulness. The second is an exhortation to holiness, a call for Israel to be holy in their action. And the last is a warning against apostasy, that Israel would be warned against going away from God, against veering off course from who God has called them to be. And so Joshua is calling the leaders to this, and he starts off this by really showing them and calling them to reflect on the faithfulness of God. He uses this word, behold, which is like, pay attention, look at what's happening. So he tells them, behold, look at what's happening with the Lord. He has given them an inheritance. He's given them an inheritance from the tribes that he is conquering before Israel. The Lord is setting aside these remaining nations as an inheritance for the tribes that remain. The Lord continues to provide, continues to move forward for the people of Israel. And he lets Israel know that he will be the one to push back their enemies. They don't need to be concerned with how this will occur, with how they will fight these battles, but he lets them know, I will be the one to push them back. In verse 5, it says, The Lord your God will push back your enemies before you and drive them out of your sight. So God isn't asking Israel to increase their strength. He's giving them a period of rest, and then he's letting them know, I'm going to push out the rest of your enemies and continue to give you that inheritance. But he doesn't say, so sharpen your swords, so work at getting stronger, recruit more men. He just tells them to trust in them, to not increase their efforts, but rather they are to increase their faithfulness to God. The Lord is the one who will move, and he is the one who has promised to Israel that he will provide for them, and he is faithful to Israel. And Joshua wants them to remember that the Lord has been faithful before, that the Lord has provided for them, and that he has been the one to fight for them. All the way back to the battle of Jericho when God collapsed the walls and, and they barely had to do anything but march around the city. God has fought for Israel. And yet, it can become easy as we move forward, as more time goes between these events, to forget what God has done or to belittle it or let it impact us more. I think the same thing happens for us in our lives. We see these amazing times when God shows up and provides. And yet the further we get away from those times, the further removed we are from those times of God moving, we tend to give them a little bit less significance rather than still holding them with the same weight that we had for them when they first occurred. And so Joshua is trying to call the leaders back, remind them of the significance of the Lord fighting for Israel. So he moves on in verse 6, giving them the instructions that they are to do because God has fought for them, because God has been mighty, because God has been faithful, because God is the one who's going to push their enemies out. Therefore, 
which is always used as kind of a bridge. It means like, this is what you are to do. Because God did all that, this is now how you are to respond. So he says, picking up in verse 6, Therefore, be strong, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the name of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. So Joshua has reminded Israel that God is the one who fights. And now he's letting them know because of that, because of God's promises, because of his goodness and his faithfulness, they are to be very strong. And how are they to remain strong? Well, they're to remain strong by keeping all that is written in the book of the law. Now, perhaps you're not familiar with it, but the book of the law, when it's used in this reference, is talking about the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Bible are the books of the law, and this is what they are to keep. This was their scripture that they had. It was the law that God had given to Israel, teaching them how to walk before him, how to live in his way, how to pursue after the holiness of God. And not only that, but how to fix it when they made mistakes, when they fell short and when they sinned, how they used the sacrificial system to set them right with God. So they are to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law. And the why, why they're to do this, Joshua continues on telling them that it's so they don't mix with these other nations around them. And we talked some about this last week, the importance of Israel being set apart of Israel not mixing with these nations, and that's part of why God called them to destroy everyone who is in Jericho. Because God wanted to keep Israel set apart, not corrupted by these foreign nations who worshipped these other gods, lowercase g gods. God wants to ensure that Israel maintains their pursuit of holiness. He wants to make sure that they aren't living in a way where they're swearing by these other gods, where they're serving them, where they're bowing down to them. And you would think, well, Israel knows God. They've seen him move. They've seen him provide. They've seen him break down walls that were before them. They've seen him part seas before them. How could they turn from him? There's no way that they'd be corrupted by these other false gods. And yet, we are fallen and sinful human beings, and temptation is real, and Israel will find themselves time and time again corrupted and led astray by the false gods around them. But Joshua is trying to set them up for success before he dies. He's trying to encourage them to, as they push through these enemies, to cling to God. Their single job is to remain true to the law in their pursuit of God. That is what their role is. They're not to be a military superpower. They're not to be the fiercest nation. They're supposed to just allow God to do all that, and they are to remain true to the law and faithful to God. I love in verse 8, it says, But you shall cling 
to the Lord your God. The picture that that word gives, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to give us really a deep meaning here. This word cling in the Hebrew is the same word that we see used in Genesis 2.24 when it describes the intimate and binding relationship between a husband and a wife. So when Genesis describes how a husband and wife are to cling to one another, that intimacy, that dependence upon one another, that is how Israel is to act with the Lord. We are to cling to the Lord in this manner. The devotion that belongs exclusively to the Lord must not be directed anywhere else, must not be taken off course by another God, but it belongs to Yahweh alone. And Joshua continues to try to remind Israel of why this is, of the role that God has played in strengthening nations, in strengthening Israel before the nations that were in front of them, even those that were stronger than Israel was. I love how it says in verse 10, one man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you. I don't know if you've ever heard of the idea of kingdom math, where God can do things that go beyond our comprehension. God can use our finances in ways that we would never expect when we're willing to submit them to the Lord. And the same thing is true here, that one man fighting against a thousand, and yet there is victory, not because the man is so strong, not because Israel is so strong, but because it's God who fights for Israel. Because God is the one who has promised to Israel that he will do that, if they maintain their focus upon him. It's amazing that God continually throughout Scripture fights for Israel. And in fact, I don't know if you know this, but we still see God fighting for Israel today. It still happens even today as God continues to seek to reach out to his chosen people of Israel. I read an account from a few years back of an amazing occurrence that happened to Israel that I want to share with you because it's just mind-boggling to watch God move, and so cool. So this example came from the Iron Dome Battery Commander. So the Iron Dome is a missile defense system that Israel has. It's an amazing system that when enemy missiles are coming into Israel, this machine will shoot those missiles down to help protect Israel. So one of the battery commanders for the Iron Dome said that when his battery failed three times to down an incoming missile headed towards Tel Aviv, the missile was going to hit a major location in Tel Aviv, and if it did, hundreds were expected to die. And he explained this to the Israel news site. He said, we fired the first inceptor, and it missed. We fired a second inceptor, and it missed again. He said, this is very rare, and he was in shock, but at this point, we had just four seconds until the missile landed. We had already notified emergency crews to converge upon the target location and had warned of a mass casualty incident. Suddenly, Iron Dome, which calculates the wind speeds among other things, showed a major wind shift coming in from the east. A strong wind blew and sent the missile right into the sea. He said, we were all stunned. I stood up and shouted, there is a God. He said, I witnessed this miracle with my own eyes. It was not told or reported to me. I saw the hand of God send that missile into the sea. You see, God fights for his people. God intercedes for his people. He doesn't call us to be the ones who fight. He calls us to focus upon him, to trust in him, and to maintain a pursuit of his instructions and law. Joshua continues in verse 12, telling Israel what will happen 
if they don't follow his instructions. It says in verse 12, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls all of you that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will, your God will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. These closing verses serve as a warning to Israel of what will happen if they turn from the Lord. They've seen his goodness. They've seen his provision. They've been called to a faithfulness to keep his laws. And yet here is the warning of what will occur if they do not continue to seek to love the Lord their God, to keep their covenant with him. Earlier in verse 8, we saw that exhortation to cling to God. And here we see the description of what happens for those who turn from God. If they turn and cling to the remnant of these nations who are remaining, if they make marriages with them, if they associate with them. You see, Israel's identity that God has given Israel is to be set apart. From when God established his covenant with Abraham, he called them to be a nation that is set apart for God. That is their purpose, to be set apart for God. So in order to do that, they cannot intermingle with these other nations that are pursuing after false gods. And this instruction is given to them of what happens if they disobey. If Israel behaves as described here in verse 12, then God lets him know, I will no longer drive out these nations ahead of you. I've said I will drive them out, but if you disobey, if you turn from me, if you intermingle and are not set apart, then I will not fight for you. I will not drive out the nations before you. And rather than fighting for you, these around you will become great difficulties. You see, when we turn from the Lord, when we take our eyes off of the Lord, we invite problems. And we will experience that the Lord is no longer fighting for us. Joshua in verse 14 moves this to a more personal note to let Israel's leaders know that he is about to die and once more exhort them to remember that not one word of all of the Lord's promises have failed to come to fruition. What a beautiful thing that is for us to remember. That every word of the Lord comes to fruition. That he is faithful and true to his promises. Joshua continues in verse 15, though, by showing what will happen if that faithfulness is not maintained to God. That people walk a path apart from God, what they will experience. And this warning for Israel is real. I think sometimes we read texts like this and we think, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe it's being blown out of proportion what will happen. Like, will God really turn away from Israel? 
Will he really stop fighting for them, his chosen people, just because they intermarry with a foreign nation or just because they allow others around them to be pursuing after false gods? And yet, when we read Scripture, we look at the canon of Scripture, and we look at Israel's story, we see that that very thing does occur. Israel turns their back on God. They intermarry and intermingle with the foreign nations. They are allowing themselves to be distracted by foreign gods. And God removes his hedge of protection from them. God stops fighting for them. Their land is taken from them. They find themselves drug off from their country into other countries of Babylon, where they're exiles from Israel. It's a very real warning here that Joshua is giving to the people of Israel. The faithfulness of the Lord is for those who follow after him. And Israel ignores Joshua's warning. They turn aside from the Lord multiple times throughout their history. And they find themselves having to deal with the repercussions and the consequences of their actions because of their neglect of their faithfulness to the Lord and his covenant. You see, Joshua tried to warn them, and and that's what this text is for us as well. It's an encouragement and it's a warning about how we live our lives today. We may not be in Israel, we may not be back in biblical times, but these words remain true today. That the Lord calls us to follow Him, to seek after Him, to maintain His word in our lives, rather than to look like the culture around us. And that there will be consequences if we put aside God's word, if we put aside the way in which we are called to live in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. There will be repercussions. There will be consequences. So just like Joshua wanted to warn the nation of Israel, we too should read this text and take it as a warning to us today. But not only as a warning, but as an encouragement to see what does happen when we do remain true to the Lord. When we are steadfast in the Lord's ways. And when we do trust him, that we will see his goodness flourish and we will see him move in mighty ways in our lives. So I want to point out three ways today that we can apply this text to our lives as we seek after the Lord. The first is the importance of faithfulness. At the core of what Israel is called to is the idea of faithfulness here in the text today. And for us too, this is extremely important. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 states, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. One of the scholars I was reading this week, Dr. Richard Hess, stated that it's only through faithfulness that Christians can continue to enjoy the divine blessings. You see, we have been saved through faith. We've been saved because of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. And yet, if we want to continue to experience the goodness of God in our lives, if we want to continue to experience the blessing of His presence in a real, tangible way as the Holy Spirit leads and guides us, then we need to continue in faithfulness to God and faithfulness to his word. We need to strive to live faithfully pursuing God, trusting him, fixing our eyes upon him. The prize when we are steadfast, when we are faithful, is worth it. In his book, Ordering Your Private World, Gordon MacDonald tells the story of an experience in his own life that, that portrays the importance of faithfulness and steadfastness. He said that some years ago, 
His wife Gail and he bought an old abandoned New Hampshire farm, which they call Peace Lodge. And he said, we found the site where we wished to build our country home strewn with rocks and boulders. It was going to take a lot of hard work to clear it all out. The first phase of clearing it up out was easy. The big boulders went fast, and when they were gone, we began to see that there were a lot of smaller rocks that had to go too. But when we had cleared the site of the boulders and the rocks, then we noticed all the small stones and pebbles that we had not seen before. And this was much harder, a much more tedious work. But he says that they stuck to it, and there came a day when the soil was ready to plant the grass. And what they received from that steadfastness, from that continued work at the goal, the continued striving forward, even amidst trials, was a beautiful grass, a beautiful yard. The faithfulness shown is just a small glimpse of an idea of the faithfulness that we must maintain to Christ. That even when we have trials, even when we get through something and we expect that life will look different, and it doesn't, that we continue at the task the Lord has called us to. We continue to move forward trusting Him. The second aspect that I believe this text speaks to, which is a difficult one, is a warning against, mix, against mixing with foreign nations. The text is clear here that God is calling Israel to be set apart, that they are not to mix with these foreign nations. And the same is true for us. Now, not in the way that we can't perhaps marry someone from a different culture or we can't have friends of a different culture. That's not at all what I'm saying. We are no longer the nation of Israel. But that we as followers of Christ must seek after holiness This idea of holiness leads to being set apart for the Lord. It means that you and I as followers of Jesus should look different than those who aren't following Jesus. Part of our journey as we pursue after Christ is that we must be willing to not conform to the world. We must be willing to be set apart, to live lives that look different, to deny ourselves pleasures or experiences that perhaps look appealing but are not of the Lord. And that has become something that I believe is lacking in our churches today. As Christians have allowed more and more to look like the world, to allow ourselves to assimilate more and more into the cultures, and have neglected to maintain the standards of Scripture far too often, with the idea that the Scriptures are outdated, the rules of Scriptures are outdated, and yet that is a false notion. I love what Jesus prays in the Gospels of John when he says in chapter 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, and they also may be sanctified in truth. You see, it's not that we can't mix with other nations, but the idea of Israel being set apart, we as Christians, as followers of Christ, should be living lives that are in, our, are in adherence with the Scripture, that are following the ways of Jesus at all costs. It shouldn't matter what our neighbors are doing. We shouldn't look like our neighbors if they're not followers of Jesus. We shouldn't spend our money the way our neighbors spend our money. We shouldn't speak the way our neighbors speak if they aren't followers of Christ. We shouldn't use our time the way that they use their time. We shouldn't watch the same things that they watch. We maybe shouldn't even eat the same things that they eat at times. As we seek to steward what the Lord has given us, the time he's given us, 
as we seek to use what he has blessed us with in a way that would further his kingdom and honor him, we must seek to be set apart, not because we're so good, not because we're so holy, but because God is holy and we are seeking to become more like him. We're seeking to look more like Christ. And we don't look more like Christ by looking more like the world. We look more like Christ by following closely in his footsteps, by putting into practice his words in scripture, by not caving in to the whims of culture that say that scripture is outdated or that we have to use these certain pronouns or we have to allow these certain lifestyles because it's unkind to speak out against it. That's not true at all. And it's not loving. It is not loving at all to allow people to continue in sin and to give it our blessing by allowing it to continue without being willing to tell them what Jesus says to tell them the truth of Scripture and what it actually looks like to live in freedom. Because I can tell you, I drive around our cities and I see people in sin. It is not freedom. It is not the life that is their best life, as people say, that you should live. The best life that you can have, the best life that anyone can have, is walking in the will of Jesus Christ, following His words, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when we see something in Scripture that we're like, that doesn't make any sense in our modern era. But you know what? The Word of God trumps what I think. The Word of God trumps what culture says. The Word of God trumps what this era says is right or wrong. Because the Word of God will continue to exist far after this day and age passes. And so we must maintain a closeness to it. And we must seek to look like the Lord rather than our surrounding cultures. And lastly, as we do this, our third application point is that we seek to hold fast to the Lord. Just like Israel was challenged to continue in obedience, we too must continue to hold fast to the Lord, practicing obedience, avoiding false gods that come in a lot of different shapes in this day and age, and to seek to love the Lord our God. This is what we must do as followers of Christ. Not being swayed away from the Lord or viewing our faith as something that is not foundational to the core of who we are. We must not lose our grasp of the importance of these theological points that the Lord has given us, but we must pursue the Lord fully. I love a quote from John Wesley, who once said, Give me a hundred men who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I will shake the whole world for Christ. So may we too be those who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin. And then we will find that we are able to live with strength and that we are able to have courage over fear. In closing today, let me remind you of what Joshua said earlier in the chapter. He said, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. So may we, as followers of Jesus, keep that as a priority, to love the Lord our God. And may we put this into practice in our lives day in and day out as we follow his word, and as we seek to walk in his ways. Part of the way that we put this into practice, that we seek to love the Lord our God, is by remembering what he did upon the cross. Each and every month, we return to this table humbly coming before the Lord, 
reflecting upon what he accomplished on the cross and partaking in these elements, not because the elements of themselves are holy, but because of what they represent, because they remind us of the love of the Lord and help us to not forget.